Only a witch cat can close a door. My name is Matthew Kroll. And bananas, 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 bananas everywhere. My name is Shahir Dowd. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film, the 1977 one that is, House. Not to be confused with the doctor who always thinks it's lupus or did his team always think it was lupus? Sherlock Holmes of doctors, right? Right. And then wasn't, there was also a horror film from 1980s called House and House 2, an American horror film. Oh. Wow. Remember that? Like it had a, no. uh, I, I remember watching it as a kid. It had a, uh, like a spooky skeleton uh, ringing a doorbell. Um, huh. I actually don't remember anything about that movie, but I do remember it was kind of a hit. Uh, from memory, hang on. Uh, we're, yeah, we're we a good thing we started. Let's look all this up. <laughs> yeah, I will look. say on IMDb, when 1985, you look, Steve okay. Miner. Yeah. When you look up House, yeah. Uh, that actually, this film comes up on the baseline search before that one does. Yes. Yeah. Oh, wait, this film, uh, 1977. The 90. Oh, great, great. It's, it's, just... it's <laughs> fifth down on the list after House, House of the Dragon, Haunting of Hill House, House of Villains, House of Cards. <laughs> then we get to the film, the 1977 film House, and then the actress Rachel House. Okay. So uh, Rachel House, is she the one? Oh, no, she's New Zealander. What am I talking about? Rachel House. Listen, I, that was a go. test and you failed. I did. I was thinking of, Ra I had Rachel Ziegler in my mind, uh, who has been cast as uh, Cinderella. <laughs> Yes. Snow White yeah, yeah, or, yeah. or like one that. of the whatever whatever newest live action thing Disney yeah. is going to shove down our throats. Um, happy Halloween. This is our oh. Halloween episode and we have decided to go on a little bit of a pivot uh, to do <laughs> to do house, which was a Christmas. Uh, no, a birthday gift for you. Yes, that's right. And can I tell you what it, like the funny thing about that? OK, is that I bought that for your birthday and then I bought myself a copy of it as well, because I was like, I can't have Matt own this and me not own this. Interesting. Like, there was a weird thing in my head, which is like, it, it makes me sad that I don't own a copy of this because I saw this many, many, many moons ago and I was I was always dazzled by it. But I was always like, that's in the Criterion Collection. You know, like there's the thing about it was like, that's a Criterion Collection movie. It's and an object. Actually, that's that's the first thing. But I, I want to ask you this. Before. I know we have emails. We have yeah. a couple other things. I want to ask you straight up because that is the origin story of how this film came to be in my home. OK, you had never heard of it. Before. No, knew nothing no, about it. No. OK. Uh, how did you find it? Um, so back in college, I want to say I was aware of this film because of just the fact that it was a cult film, you know, like everyone knew about it. Like it was, it circulated, uh, amongst our cinephile friends, like, uh, like wildfire. And it, it, there was always just like this inevitable moment. It was like, have you seen Haosu? And, and, you know, like I hadn't seen it at the time. And so I watched it at that point. And I remember I was also, also at that period in my life, I was more uh, available and interested in watching uh, like off the beaten path sure. film, you know, like, like Takeshi Miike was probably my gateway drug at that point. I, it's funny because in college, this would have been the film that me and my friends would have gravitated towards around a bunch. Yeah. The, the, the interesting thing I think is we've hunted for all this kind of stuff and none of, none of my friends, including some who've been on the show who are like more knowledgeable about cult film than I am. Yeah. This never came up. Right. I don't know why it's yeah. not, it, we I bought a I mean, obviously, this was a in the, in the Criterion Collection version that we watched. Yeah, um, I don't know. I guess this was what what, what region is Japan back in the day? Was it two? Um, I don't yeah, remember, yeah, but yeah. I bought like for Korean cinema and for Japanese cinema, I bought a region free DVD player like I was hunting things down in yeah. college like this. Never, never crossed my path. Well, it's uh, a blind spot. Film, yeah, it's, but yeah, it's great, right? Like, uh, and and to be clear, I have many, many blind spot films that I've never heard, never seen. 
Um, but this one, this one in particular was something that kind of circulated. Uh, and, and, you know, we kind of like, again, in uh, shouting out our street video, which is a video store in New Zealand. Uh, it had things like this and you would, you'd be able to go talk to the person at the counter and they would tell you, oh, you're looking for some, here's something really fun. And then right. pull out this movie. Shout out to Rachel House. Yeah. Shout out to Rachel House <laughs> in New Zealand. Who did not work at the R Street video no. store. Well, actually, you don't know. No, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure I do. She know. was born in 1971. <laughs> And she lives in Auckland, I believe. Okay. <laughs> Which, I mean, uh, well, maybe not the same video. I was saying video stores in general. We all <laughs> probably worked at a video store. I never worked at a video really? store. Really? I want. I applied to. I got rejected to work at a video store. All right. All so right. I never worked at a video store, and I always wanted to because I always wanted to be that annoying guy at the front counter. I was like Navy Seals. Ugh. You would have been great at that. Uh, <laughs> I think I would have probably been the worst. I never, again, I never worked in a in a video. I never store. worked in a movie theater either. So I technically, I've told the story. I won't go into it, but I did like pseudo work at a movie theater that all my friends ran and managed. What's pseudo work? Uh, I would run scams at the front of the counter and like. Wait, were you a ticket scalper? Uh, in, a movie in, in a way, um, were you a little scamp? I was a little on? scamp, but then like we just throw parties and like have bike races while we'd watch like the Matrix print going and like it was so it was in nuts. clerks. You would be the you would be like um, uh, not uh, not the guy who worked at the convenience store, but his friend who just keeps coming in. Yeah, but <laughs> but also like would help like if someone someone could be like Matt, I gotta go over here watch front of house for a second. I'd be like, okay. But you were were you employed? No, <laughs> no. Uh, but I got all the candy and popcorn and soda. I want. Shout out to the Premier Eight. Uh, that Premier Eight out of business. Um, but I wonder why. I wonder it actually why. definitely no, wasn't. They got a great me. business model because they have employees that they don't pay. Well, <laughs> that's a great. I won't get line. into it too much, uh, but yeah. So that's the closest I've come to working in the business of distribution of films. Okay, fair enough. Uh, um, <laughs> in the business of promoting films that we shouldn't be, uh, it was Halloween this week. Uh, you have a finely trimmed, thin mustache right now in front of me. What did you dress up as oh, for Halloween? I, I was uh, Gomez Adams, and Jamie was Morticia. Uh, Lovely. We we fucking did you dress it. the dog as Wednesday? No, we should have. We, or, actually, or we should have done thing. Zoe is Wednesday and, and Laszlo is Pugsley. Oh, um, that would have been perfect. That would have been very good. But then yeah. we would have had to brought them and I don't want to do that. Right. No, um, it was super fun. Uh, we have some good pictures. Actually, I went to a, a YouTube creator event on Halloween. Okay. Um, and uh, they had they had a professional photographer there. I'll show you some pictures. Yeah. Uh, oh, I'll bring up uh, what I was. Uh, I got a I got an Aquaman costume. Oh, as, as is the style at the time, and uh, and I was I was the Aqua. I was a uh, fish man. We should post these. Oh, look at you! Holy shit! <laughs> I was the fish man. Wow. Yeah. Yo, Shahir's been working out. <laughs> well, no, the costume has like labs. No, shut <laughs> up, man. Shahir's working out. We'll post. We'll post them. Uh, we'll post them on the Insta. We'll post maybe. them at some point. Yeah. Um. But happy Halloween to everyone. If you celebrate, uh, if you manage to watch a scary movie for the first time, if you manage to go out trick or treating with your children, as uh, as we learned in an episode many years ago, adults don't go trick or treating. I did not know that was mm -hmm, not the case. Mm -hmm. Um. And uh, we are excited to share our Halloween episode. But first. Yes, well, I, I have a first, but first, oh, I do just want to say first. about the about the Adams Family films. Okay, okay. Adams Family and Adams Family Values. Yep. actually still hold up oh, incredibly well. Very Sonnenfeld, incredible. I did not expect like to be as enraptured with them again. Upon I've watched them twice this season, prepping for the yeah. character, but also just like just having fun. There's something they don't make family movies like the Adams Family anymore, which yeah. is a very Oldman thing to say, but like. It's someone someone hit the nail on the head for me and I'm, I'm blanking on this. But like the reason why, like Wednesday, obviously, was a big hit on Netflix. Yeah. But the but 
I didn't finish it and I wasn't invested in the story. Yeah. And uh, I'm blanking on who told me this. So email us in at podcast at gmail.com if you were that person. Um, but they basically were like, you know why Wednesday doesn't work? Oh, it was Rob. Rob Rath, our writer on Extra History. He right. said that it what didn't work because the Adams family, no matter what iteration it is, was always a highly functional family within their unit mm-hmm. that was just so weird together that that the outside world was the was the conflict, right? right. Or like they they would freak out other people. In Wednesday, there's a whole, did you watch Wednesday? I didn't watch Wednesday. There's like an intrigue about like a secret that Morticia has and she's keeping from Wednesday. And it's like, it's like there's interfamily conflict, right. which made it not like, I think that's a core tenant of the Adams family that I didn't even realize. Yeah. So like, I don't know. I no no disrespect to Wednesday. I know it was a hit, yeah. uh, but it did not grab my interest like literally every other piece of Adams family media did oh yeah i like um again barry sonnenfeld who directed um men in black uh and get shorty uh who directed the adams family just just like uh his sense of comedic timing and like the those those two projects i guess men in black and the adams family and adams family two were so perfectly wound to his sense of timing. And remember he comes out of um sam Ra- the the sort of yeah. circle of sam raimi and the cohen brothers who all have that kind of wonderful sense of comedic slapstick timing that's like precision, you know, like it's 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 kind of looney to- cinematic looney tunes, but with absolute precision. And yeah, they don't make them like that anymore. And it's it it really um was it Raul Garcia, uh Raul Julia, Raul Julia as and Angelica Houston? They're incredible yeah. in those roles. Uh was it and Christopher Lloyd as um mm-hmm. as, as, Fester. Uh, as Fester, yeah. Everything about and and then don't forget. The freaking MC Hammer song. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah the, the, the Adams Family Values as well. Yep. Like, this was the time of the bang. You know, those kinds of like, you know, Will Smith uh, tie-in songs that were actually like hits. Well, it's trying to tie in. I don't know if that song was, a, if that MC Hammer song was a hit. Wild Wild West, which is also Wild, a Wild song. Wild West is great. Yeah. But the, yeah, the the adding the hip hop track to the end of a, of a yeah. traditionally not hip hop yeah. film uh, was always something that was interesting. We did um, we did the animated anime Adams Family with my son mm-hmm. and he really dug those. And mm-hmm. I think that's got Oscar Isaac yes. as, uh, Gomez. As, as Gomez. Yep. Um, and that's, that's a lot of fun as well. It's The Adams Family is great. Like, I also I'm old enough to have watched the TV show Same. in black and white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like um, I wasn't alive in the era when it was when yeah, it actually but came we've out. Seen it. But it, but it came out in black and white. And it's a it's it's such a great show because, like you say, or uh, as Robert Rath said, the 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 gag here is that they are creepy and kooky, mysterious and spooky, mm-hmm. but they're a family and they're like and they love each other and they're like within their own world. They actually function like purely as a family and like and in really well. They're I would say the only family to usurp them on the screen uh, would just be Bluey's family. I think it would <laughs> yeah. go in, in family values. Uh, yeah. There would be those two. And I can't I can't name another tighter knit group. A tighter and tighter family. I'm sure there's lots. Um, <laughs> That's it. Those are the only two. <laughs> we've got uh, a bunch of emails and we've got a voicemail. Could you play that for us, please? Hello, I am Danny Vincent, a huge fan of the only podcast about movies, so much that inspired me to make two other podcasts that are vaguely about movies called The Snub Club and um, Looking for the Ocean of Pixar Journey, never which are like only about movies. So really, you guys still have the monopoly here. Um, I'm also the guy who like, made the letterbox page for your show on the letterbox list. So, but anyway, I did recently watch finally Sherlock Jr. Silent movies are like a big blind spot of mine. So it was super exciting to watch this old Buster Keaton movie and be completely taken away with like how magical it was and very particularly like how funny it was and how ahead of the time it felt. 
with a lot of the jokes. Um, and I'm really glad I finally watched it. Um, but yeah, that was my that's my cinematic blind spot I recently watched. That was incredible because I've been meaning to watch this old silent movie for years. And yeah, I can't wait to hear this guy, your guys' episode on this because Heat is amazing and I haven't seen Beau Travel, so maybe I should have done that for my cinematic blind spot to watch. Oops, but yeah, Sherlock Jr., fantastic. Oh, hi, Danny. Oh, that, hi, Danny. Danny. That was wonderful. Again, first th- first off, thank you for writing, uh, for creating the Litterbox list. Uh, there is a, uh, I'll link to it in the show notes. I, I don't know your Litterbox name off the top of my head, um, but there is a Litterbox list that Danny has created, which uh, details every movie that we've done on the podcast. So if you're looking for something, because we, we actually just discovered this this morning, it's hard to search through our 450 plus episodes yeah, for you, specific episodes. Even on Spotify or on our website or other things, like she, she and I typed in the exact same prompt on Spotify for one of our episodes and he found it and I didn't. Yeah, so. So I don't know. Um, also, uh, just for reference, the, the blind spot thing, if you haven't seen our blind spot episode, Shahir and I did one, what, two weeks ago, yeah, three two, weeks two, ago, I don't know, uh, where we looked at films that we, we, we've we felt like we should have seen and we had not. And that was the reference to Heat and uh, Beau Travail. Travail. Um, yeah. So uh, <laughs> and then uh, I wanted to say this to Danny as well. Um, when I was in college, when I was in college, uh, we had a visiting professor to come to our film school for a year at Victoria University, a guy by the name of Professor Andrew Horton who was obsessed with and had written a book about Sherlock Jr. So for basically a year, we watched Sherlock Jr., analyzed it, talked about it, discussed the silent movie period. Uh, I got to watch a lot of silent movies in that era, which was which was really wonderful. And they and like Danny said, they are incredible. Watch um, the, the film for me that always blows my mind is The General, Buster Keaton, which was okay. a main reference point for um, Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning mm-hmm. um, 1. Part one, which is no longer the title. The now. key, the key, the <laughs> yeah. key, the key. Um, and uh, they are like the physical act, uh, the physical performance of these guys is just remarkable. And and blows my mind. And if you have kids, these are great gateway films. I showed my son uh, Modern Times, the Charlie Chaplin film, and uh, when he was a bit younger, and he giggled all the way through it. You know, like it's it it is like clown slipping on a banana peel yeah. kind of humor mm-hmm. but it's done you know again so perfectly well um that it really resonates so uh again danny thank you for sending this in uh i recommended to danny a film uh a film called forgotten silver which if anyone is a big peter jackson fan uh, may not know about this film but it's a documentary he made prior to lord of the rings um he was already contracted to make lord of the rings but he wanted to make this documentary about a guy who created the first uh, silent film, uh, silent film epic uh, in New Zealand, and also may have invented the plane. I'll give you a hint right now. This is all a mockumentary, and it, but it was amazing because he aired it with no fanfare uh, in on TV in New Zealand. And the next day it was like, is this real? Like it was, he basically played a prank on <laughs> it all. It was of your these. War of the Worlds. Yeah, it was our War of the Worlds, and it was genius. Uh, so check out Forgotten Silver, uh, which has a lot of inventive stuff about. Uh, uh, um, uh, the silent film period. Um, yeah. Again, thank you, Danny. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, do you want to take Anika's email? Should I take Anika's email? Uh, you grab that one. All right. Anika wanted to write in about our After Sun episode, which was quite a while ago as well. I just wanted to express a lot of gratitude for you folks sharing bits of your own stories and how they impacted you and how the film resonated with you. Shahir 
You said something that really resonated with me when you said the movie is an invitation for you to reflect on your own life. I literally said, oof, out loud, that aptly encapsulated my experience of the movie. I was initially excited to watch the film as a fan of Paul Mescal. I knew it was supposed to be good and supposed to be heavy, but I really did not expect it to affect me in the ways that it did. When watching the film, though, I also don't have the specific experiences that Sophie did. It brought up a lot of memories and feelings of my own life and my own complicated relationship with my father. The idea of there being a time before and a time after, the time before where your dad was just your dad, and the time after where something changes, shifts, where that person, or in my case, your perception of that person, is absent and no longer. The film captured those feelings in such a beautiful way, and in a way that I've never experienced before. In the last few sequences, as the credits rolled, I cried and I cried as the movie gave space for emotions from my real life that I don't often give space to. The credits ended and I sat reflecting on my own life and my own experience and my own grief and my own memories in a way that struck me off guard and was hard, but also beautiful. Once again, this is why when you said the movie is an invitation for you to reflect on your own life, it really resonated so deeply because that's what I experienced. It was an interesting, uh, it was interesting listening to you folks talk about the film as it reminded me of those resonant moments in the film and reminded me of all those feelings that come up and made me feel as if I had just watched it a day ago versus seven months ago. After this film, I can never listen to Under Pressure in the same way, <laughs> which perhaps is a good thing. And now reminds me of the movie that gave me space, my own experience and complicated feelings that needed to be listened to. Anyway, thank you both so much. Wonderful ep episode as always. Oh, thanks, Anika. Thanks, Anika. Yeah. yeah what an incredible film that is, uh, After Sun. A, a difficult one to revisit. Yeah. Uh, um, I'll probably, I got two more in my lifetime. Two more After Sun? Two more After Suns, yeah. I think, probably at 10 year intervals. Uh, yeah. Uh, and we'll see how it goes. But yeah, it's, yeah I think it, it, it is one of those things that does stick with you in the, and, and the, However it resonates with you, it stays with you for a lot longer than a lot of films. Yeah. Which is an interesting thing to affect your timing of a rewatch. Yeah, I've definitely had movies in my life where I have avoided them because I know they will conjure up feelings yeah. that I don't want to be conjured at that moment. For example, uh, and, and although the film is not personally reflective of me, I've only watched Requiem for a Dream once in my life, but I think about it a lot. And every time I think to rewatch it, I actually own it. Every time I think to rewatch it, I go, I'm not ready for this right now. Um, so uh, I will do that at one point. I might have one Requiem for a Dream in me, yeah. uh, one more in my life. Next email is from Kellen. Kellen writes, it's Sunday night and I'm only 11 minutes into the new episode and I already have something to email you about. Okay, well, <laughs> what did we say, Kellen? Purely anecdotal evidence, but the past few times I've gone to the malls here at the opposite end of the state, uh, the selection of DVDs and Blu-rays at Barnes & Noble has been far better than Best Buy. Granted, before COVID, Best Buy selection was bigger, but the past couple of years have had, uh, I've had far better luck finding titles at Barnes & Noble. I will say Best Buy might barely have uh, the more physical inventory, but a display with 25 copies of Megan and Minions does not seem like a big win when Barnes and Noble has all those Criterion collection releases. Either way, losing places uh, to buy physical media sucks. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Kellen. Yeah, that was we were discussing yeah, the, it's, the it's Best Buy choosing to stop uh, selling physical media. And you were saying that Barnes and Noble, I believe, right? I I, I can happily go like <laughs> when when we go shopping, not in a mall, but like out in the city and my and uh, my wife wants to go shopping. Uh, I can happily go, you know what? I'm just going to go hang out at Barnes, Barnes and Noble for like the next two hours or something yeah. like that. And just like, I can peruse the shelves for hours. I can look at movies that I haven't seen, want to see, think about seeing. I'll walk out with like a couple of hundred bucks worth of Blu-rays uh, Blu that I shouldn't have spent money on. Uh, but Barnes and Noble is great. Because Barnes and Noble's, 
you know, treats itself as a book reseller. So they kind of curate their selection. Plus they are, I think the only physical stockist of the Criterion collection. So they I have so. most of the Criterion collection in there. Uh, it, uh, you know, whenever I've gone to Best Buy, I've tried to do the same thing at Best Buy. Oh, you can't. And, and it's like, I'm in and out in like five minutes. Also, we were just talking about the purchasing of physical media at Best Buy. I would say, especially in the city, shopping at a Best Buy is a fucking nightmare. Yeah. Like I, I've never in the last five years, yeah. I've never had a shopping experience at a Best Buy where I was like, where either. I thought that was super easy and convenient, or I had no thoughts about it. It was always what a huge fucking pain in the ass. And it didn't have nearly anything that I wanted. This is a picked clean graveyard of electronics. Yeah. Unless I want to go in the back and and look at whatever weird Bose stereo system they're hawking in a specialty <laughs> room that's taking up too big of a footprint in this Manhattan store. What I like about Best Buy is the price match guarantee. So I'm the asshole. Whenever I go into Best Buy, um, I will pick up the thing I want search for it on Amazon and then go up to the counter and say price match that. And it all, they always do it. Yeah. So, hey, uh, <laughs> listen, that's that, great. Yeah. Best Buy has turned into an Amazon retail store for me. <laughs> as as will all of our homes one day. Stephen writes in, sadly, I miss getting in on the blind spot episode. I was planning to watch Fear and Loathing Las Vegas, which I totally pretended to have seen to anyone who's talked about it. Nice. Uh, work got in the way and it looks like I'm going to have to keep pretending. Pretend no longer, Stephen. You should watch that movie. It is incredible. Um, and uh, I think the if you haven't seen it and anyone asks you about Fear and Loathing Las Vegas, you can just say the bats. The bats are going to get it's me. It's bad country. Yeah. Uh, it's a Venge Sevenfold song. Um, no, I would say I'm going to counterbalance. Not that it's a bad movie. It's a great movie. But keep pretending. See how long <laughs> you can go and keep tricking your friends and family into thinking you've seen it. Hopefully they don't listen to this because otherwise the jig is up. The weird thing is I was watching Rango uh, not so long ago, and Rango has a weird in-joke to Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas as well. Uh, and I believe there's something else as well. So maybe watch Rango, which is also great, uh -huh. and and then use that as your reference yeah, point. Yeah, just actually, if anyone asks you about Fear and Loathing, just, just start talking about <laughs> Rango, Rango yeah. but don't correct the titling. Yeah, yeah, just I, go. That'll work. Do you? Uh, last one is from Muhammad, uh, who writes in, hope you're doing well. I recently had the pleasure of seeing Killers of the Flower Moon in theaters, and I think it's probably the best film of the year and a solid reminder of Mr. Scorsese as one of the greatest living filmmakers of all time. From its gorgeous cinematography to its slow and almost menacing score, uh, this is a triumph of film. I don't remember the last time I was this close to the edge of my seat, figuratively and literally. I also can't watch movies <laughs> reclining while at a theater. Um, <laughs> I think the way Mr. Scorsese shows the fate of the characters is a stroke of genius and further hits the nail on just how tragic and inhumane the story was and slash is and the final scene had me crying the entire way back home i just think it was a magnificent movie wish you all the best p.s i uh who knew that i'd break my witnessing a couple making out in the theater cherry while watching this film <laughs> huh you know it's funny i actually misread this and i i i, I misread this as someone losing their cherry while in the film oh, like they like, were having sex in the film. <laughs> i was like and killers of the flower moon wow that's yeah, uh, a hot Hot film. <laughs> it's a hot, hot take. Yeah, uh, twisted love story, so to speak. Um, I'm so glad that you enjoyed Kills of the Flower Moon. I hope you got the chance to listen to our episode with Red Sharazan, who joined us, who worked on Kills of the Flower Moon. Um, really incredible uh, discussion that we had in that episode. Also, um, if you're excited about the film now, the book is a great read. Yeah. Uh, it's a really, really quick read. Um, it goes into a lot more detail as to what happened. More of the FBI uh, side, too. More of the FBI side, which is really fascinating as well. Um, but, you know, kind of covers that tragedy in um, incredible ground. And as we kind of discussed in that episode, uh, hopefully the movie is uh, uh, a bouncing off point to see more of these stories as told by indigenous people uh, or First Nations people. 
Um, yeah. So uh, again, thank you to everyone that emailed us in at onlymoviepodcast at gmail.com. Um, we love hearing about your blind spot movies. You love hearing about your uh, theater cherry busting experience. Ooh, did uh, I just say that nope, out loud? Nope. Uh, we love hearing about your experiences watching movies. There we go. And we love, uh, uh, you know, uh, hopefully fostering a sense of community, a little mini Adams family, so to speak, where we are the Morticia and Gomez of the bunch and you are our little things. <laughs> no, 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 no. That you are <laughs> not, you're like, you're like two for 10. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. If, bring it back. We have to go back to the house. Okay. Tell us about Noahiko Obayashi's film, 1970s. I, by the way, I'm still blown away by 1977 of this thing. It's pretty, I mean, it what, Star Wars was 79? Same, same year. Oh, 77. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, tell us about Haosu. Well, uh, IMDb says Haosu is uh, a schoolgirl and six of her classmates travel to her aunt's country home, which turns out to be haunted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to read uh, from Chuck Stevens' uh, essay, which is in the blue, the Criterion Blu-ray. What a lovely little book that came with <laughs> the Blu-ray. It's great, right? Like the, this is why I love the Criterion yeah. collection. You feel like you've gotten like a piece of history. Yeah. Uh, Chuck Stevens writes in his essay entitled The Housemaidens, uh, a coming-of-age story about a clique of teenage schoolgirls who will never grow old and a demon spirit in the guise of a spinster who is never young. Nobuyuko Obayashi's eye-poppingly demented, jaw-droppingly inventive house is 1970s Japanese pop culture at its most delightfully unhinged extreme. A midnight movie about nobility and dismemberment marketed to a matinee audience of adolescents and office ladies. A pre-digital maelstrom of cinekinetic cinekinetic visual ingenuity produced during one of the most tepid seasons in the late 20th century Japanese filmmaking. A modern masterpiece of le cinema do what the fuck. So <laughs> I really loved reading the article in that booklet. I will say uh, Chuck loves run on sentences. <laughs> the entire thing is like 12 sentences and it's like 10 pages. I was reading. I was like, has this stopped? <laughs> yeah. And, and I, this is coming from someone who loves run-on sentences. <laughs> and I was like, all right, good, good. So People are doing it. I saw House uh, a long time ago. I, I barely remembered it. It was in a run of films that I watched uh, at the time. Uh, more than anything, I remembered the poster. Um, and then uh, for your birthday, I wanted to, I, I remember I bought you two DV, two yes, Blu-rays. The uh, first one, which is the one whose name I cannot remember, but it's the one that's the best film of all time based on the list. The BFI Sight and Sound um, uh, Top 100 list. Uh, it was Jean Dialman lives at 23 yes, something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rue de Commerce. A uh, long name yeah. and then a short name film. <laughs> yeah. House. And well, because I, so so in the, in the, in the spectrum of movies, because uh, this is the, the case for me as well. Jean Dialman is kind of homework and it is uh, it's it's going to be a movie that's going to be uh, and I'm not saying this to you personally. It's challenging for anyone to get through. It's three and a half hours long. It's about the domestic life of a woman in Paris. And it is basically about the mundane tasks that she has to fill her time with. It's and we watch those mundane tasks in real time. It's funny. I wonder if I will bounce off it or not, because again, I love films like Umberto D, which doesn't show like the mundanity so much, but is sort of a slice of life. Like, yeah. like there's a lot of people walking to and from places. And I, I, I watched Jean Dalman for the first time because of the BFI list. And I found it oddly hypnotic. Huh. Like it was this thing where I, and I watched it over a couple of nights, just to be clear. Uh, so not that hypnotic. <laughs> no. Well, <laughs> what here's when I say hypnotic, here's the thing. Every night, I would like be like, "Oh, I'm ready to check in with Gian Dialman and see what she's What's doing. What's she up to? What's she up to right now?" And it was kind of like 
not reality television, but it was kind of like um, uh, there was something sort of very um, panopticon about it where you were sort of like just dipping in and watching what this person was doing huh. uh, for like an hour at a time. And it was, and it was wonderful. I mean, I watch four hour episodes of critical role, so maybe I'll just be right in there. Maybe. Um, but I wanted to balance. I like, I, I didn't want to just give you that because I felt like that would be like a gift. That's not like, you know, thanks the, for the apple on <laughs> Halloween. Shahir. Exactly. So I wanted to give you something that I thought you would love. And, and in fact, I, I think we gave it with Patrick Williams in the room and he said the same thing. He was like, you are going to love this. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I hope I was right. Uh, tell me what you thought about House. Uh, overall, I really did dig it. Um, it is, it's funny. This is one of those episodes that I feel like more people will listen to having not seen the film okay. than will, because you, you, it is it, without spoiling exactly what happens in House, you kind of already know what happens in House. Right. But if you if you if you are familiar with any kind of uh, horror film that this thing is is I wouldn't even say based on just structurally related to right um it's cuckoo bananas <laughs> and there's lots of bananas especially by the end um Poor I, Mr. Togo. I think Togo. no he I didn't like that guy you didn't like Mr Togo no why because he's like a romance interest for like a a, a young schoolgirl and he's yeah, a teacher he but he didn't do it he he didn't initiate the romance interest they talk about him I know he doesn't but do he's anything going inappropriate. to a weekend house with these seven girls he was he was supposed to be taking them on a school trip and then he couldn't take them on a school trip. So then they agree to rearrange it. And then he goes, he falls on. He's not, he missed it. I will not have his name. I, I'm just saying. He, he is he, a banana man by the end of this movie. He is a banana man by <laughs> oh, the man, end of this sorry, movie. Spoil, look, we're not going to spoil house. We, 1977. We film. don't know. You don't know, listener, what him becoming a banana man means. <laughs> you have no idea. But he has not done it. anything inappropriate in the movie. no. <laughs> Except the entirety of his relationship with but, with, this, but, but with it, his students. But the students talk about him. He doesn't talk about them. He's going to stay with them at one of their aunt's summer homes. Well, I don't know. That might I don't be know what you do with your students. <laughs> Not that. But uh, I, it's it didn't seem like it was out of the ordinary. Actually, it's funny. From a, I think it did from a story. But yeah. then, but also from a structural perspective, you're dealing with these seven girls in a haunted house. Yeah. Bad shit stuff is happening. And then every once in a while, we cut to Mr. Togo having trouble, like, in traffic. Or, or eating ramen. noodles. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, why? <laughs> why then, are you here? And then, and, and I think what's amazing is, like, there's a sequence where uh, one of the girls is is being tortured or something like that. I, we're saying this in a delightful way, by the way. Be, not, not to suggest that torture is fine, but it's just that the movie is funny. It's it's really funny and fun to watch. We were talking about slapstick earlier, and yeah. we were talking about like um, the Adams family, the Adams family yeah. in an, in an odd way. Not that this sort of connects in that regard, but there is a. This is not like a slasher horror movie thing. This is not a cabin in the woods. This is not a. You There's know. not a mean spiritedness to the storytelling. Which is interesting when juxtaposed to the murder. Actually, let's <laughs> the let's, murders, the murders. <laughs> let's go juxtapose it to the Adams family, right? The yeah. Adams family is something that literally in the first frames before the title of the Adams family comes up, the whole there's Christmas carolers at the base of their house, and the camera pans up their weird, creepy building, and they're all standing up there, and the children are about to dump uh, what is assumed to be hot oil onto <laughs> the uh, onto the parishioners, and then the Adams family logo comes out in smoke. 
joke. Right. So my point there is there's lots of murder in the Adams family. Right. But they never show it. They always cheekily reference it in verbal ways or off screen things or something like that. Like Uncle Nick Knacks for winter wardrobe, Uncle Nick Knacks for summer wardrobe, Uncle Nick Knack. Like they're like when they're pulling bags out of a cabinet. Here, the vibe is the same lightheartedness, but you're see like it's the presentation of the murders that is whimsical. Yeah. The characters do not think it is whimsical. Well, there's a time when Kung Fu is like, well, this is just, maybe it was just all an illusion. Well, sure. But I'm saying <laughs> overall, as they're getting murdered, they're not like having a good time. I don't know. I, Mac, I think. <laughs> no, Mac was not. Mac got freaked out and then bad things happened to Mac. Um, yeah. It's, 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 so, so the, so the setup is, uh, you know, what's funny is it is seven girls in a haunted house, seven teenage girls in a haunted mm -hmm. house, which uh, funnily enough, I remember years ago. It was the name I, of your prog rock band. <laughs> I was I was pitching a producer on a very serious project and uh, the producer turned to me at the end and said, well, you know, we're not the you know, they weren't going to uh, be interested in it. But they're like, but I have this idea for a movie where it's these teenagers in the woods and they get picked off one by one. What do you think about that? And I was like. I didn't say it at the time. I was like, you mean every horror movie that's ever been yeah, am made? I being, is this, am I being punked right now? <laughs> yeah, what is I it like, like, I don't, listen, <laughs> I don't like what you're pitching me, but what about a, a story about a hero that goes on a journey? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and what I liked about re-watching the film right now, so uh, there's this other beautiful thing, which is that all the uh, main characters' names are basically identity points as opposed to uh yeah we yeah. have we have so uh the main character's name is gorgeous mm -hmm. uh then you have fantasy yeah. she's really into imagining stuff then you have sweet who just has a sweet disposition then you have kung fu guess what she does <laughs> yeah then you have melody yeah. guess what she does she plays music then you have prof who's like uh, the nerdy one with the yeah. glasses and of course uh you have mac which is not short for like mac and cheese or something like that but she's always eating and it's supposed to be for stomach yeah stomach um <laughs> Those are the seven girls. Who who would you you know like in the sort of Samantha Six in the City kind of thing? Which uh, which are you oh, more of a man. Miranda? Uh, I'd <laughs> probably be fantasy, but I'd really want to be kung fu. Yeah, I think everyone wants to be kung, kung fu. fu is fuck, she fucking <laughs> kills it literally, in and this it's movie. it's amazingly filmed. Uh, and she's got one of the best soundtracks as well. Um, but I th I think I'm prof, maybe with a little bit sure, of Mac. Sure, prof and Mac is kind of my combo. Uh, well, Mac, uh, spoiler alert for House in 1977. <laughs> Mac gets picked off first. Yeah, I know. In the in and and she is the kind of the the jumping off point for when you're like, oh, this is a horror movie. Yeah. I, I, up until that point, it is uh, a sort of whimsical, partially animated. You know, like if we were looking for comps uh, in in Western cinema, uh, sort of Terry Gilliam esque. Sure. Um, I'll, I'll say fantasy. I'll say this. I, you you asked me to to film myself uh, watching the and beginning of the movie. And I've forgotten that the first thirty minutes is no horror. There's no horror, yeah. and so I have eighteen minutes of me just <laughs> sitting there being like, I mean, this is weird, uh, but like not not like I should have specified. And like, I, I turned it off maybe, and like fifteen minutes later, after that, yeah. uh, then the weird stuff started. But actually, so we're describing. Mm. What could be considered a cookie cutter plot to a horror movie, but right? Filmed in such a way. That's what I want to talk about. So so. I, this is basically um, it feels like it's Obayashi sort of like just opening up a toy box and yeah. going like super hard. Well, it's um, the first film as well. 
Pitt's first film. Well, he was working in commercials beforehand. He yeah. was working on doing. He is kind of one of the main progenitors of the super weird American actors in Japanese commercials. Um, yeah. Uh, you see the Charles uh, Bronson. Yeah. yeah. Like, like <laughs> he's the dude that was helping come up with that weird shit. Yeah. And the second I read that in the Criterion Collection book, I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> this makes total sense because he's basically. It feels like a filmmaker that's just hyper excited about trying a bunch of shit, knowing that half of it isn't going like knowing that individual elements will not work, but throwing so many of them together where you're like, all right, I'm on this ride. Yeah. Like even just the way like the back plates are, are, are comped in incredible. Um, I, I, I don't, they're not comped in. They're actually like in the shot. Like, well, there's, there's a couple of cases where they do blue screen, but but the but the the skies are there like they 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 put in a backdrop. Yes. <laughs> so there's sometimes it's backdrop. Sometimes yeah. it's comp. Sometimes like they, what I'm saying is they use almost every possible like technique almost yeah. that it was available to them in 1977. Yeah. Um, to middling effect. But when you smash them all together and you have such a oddly dynamic dynamic to wow like the dynamic the the dynamism yeah. there we go of the editing yeah is so fucking off the wall and it, for, again if you watched five seconds of it you'd be like this is trash <laughs> if you watch 10 minutes of it you're like i get it and it's cool that all of the building blocks it feels like it feels like um like a lego set that when you look at it close up it's like well this is trash and you zoom out you're like oh you made the entirety of the pirates of the caribbean like right. like it's it's there's a a deceptiveness to the amateur hour vibe that it gives you at first and yeah. then you're like oh no 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 these are all very deliberate very purposeful very effective choices well that's the thing that i think this is why you know again um being included in the Criterion Collection because you would ordinarily say this is kind of a B movie. In fact, it was part of a you know two two part. Yeah, uh, it was B a grindhousey thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the, but there is a quality to this where I watched it this time around, which I just love so much. Um, thinking about like Sam Raimi and Peter Jackson again in those early years, and again, uh, Obayashi was an experimental filmmaker. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of school he came from. Um, you never know. And then, you know, his commercial, I, I did watch the Charles, like a bunch of the Charles Bronson commercials. And I was like, I, you know, I don't, I don't know about these, but like, they're kind of, they're kind of fun and campy in their, in their way. Um, but you know, apparently he made like 2000 commercials oh, before yeah. he directed a feature film. Uh -huh. Um, and the feature, and, and what I love here, and you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there in terms of the Lego, uh, outlook was that he wasn't sure what he wanted to make for his first feature film. So he consulted his daughter, who was 11 years old mm -hmm. at the time, and asked her the, uh, about what scares her. And they were, and what he found was that they were scary things, but also silly and funny in a way. Yep. Um, so she played piano. And so she was always like, I feel like sometimes the piano lid is going to come down and eat and like chop off my fingers. And he decided to make a whole sequence out of that. Yeah. Uh, you know, the idea that there was a clock in the wall and what if there was a person inside, you know, like stuck inside the clock grinding through it, kind of like um, Charlie Chaplin in modern times. Yeah. Um, so the film was kind of conceived as the 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 fear and terrors of a young girl and the main characters being young girls you know kind of plays into that as well um my rewatch of it was that there was quite a depth to what the story was actually saying about gorgeous 
and her family dynamics that is changing. So at the beginning of the film, she's very excited because her dad is coming back from Italy where his music is better than Morricone's. Um, Sergio Leone said that his music was better. Um, But he brings with him uh, a new mother for her. And this is, uh, you know, like in the sort of reverse Oedipal kind of approach, this is sends her entire world balance off view. And the mother, uh, who I'm, I'm not sure who the actress who plays her, uh, I want to give credit to the silk, silk scarf that she's wearing, which billows in the wind as she comes in. Whenever she's on camera or moving. <laughs> there is this beautiful silk scarf on her. A scarf. Scarf? Scarf. A scarf on her uh, that billows in the wind. It's just kind of this incredible thing. But it's basically when gorgeous goes, uh, t- decides to go back to her auntie's house. It is about this replacement fear that she has, that she is no longer going to be the apple of her father's eye. Mm-hmm. And it o- unlocks this greater trauma that has happened in her life, which is that her mother and her auntie have lived in this house uh, where, uh, again, playing into Obayashi's fear, uh, Obayashi's upbringing. Obayashi was born in the Hiroshima prefect- uh, prefecture. Mm-hmm. Uh, in And he was three, he was he was a young boy when, when the bomb was dropped. Yep. Uh, and his dad went away to war. His dad actually did come back. Um, so the the story of the auntie is tied into that, which is that she was going to marry a man who went away to war and never came back. And there is a growing mythology about that. And her sister got married, but she never did. And it kind of, again, plays into the sort of grander mythology at play here, which I think, again, if you look at Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi in those early films, like in Evil Dead, there is this sort of underlying psychology to what is happening within the film sure. that plays off. And then it's this absolutely um, perfectly uh, encapsulated by this sort of demented fever dream of how these murders actually work and the, and the technique at play. I watched this and went, you know, Obayashi's career after that, he made, um, you know, a lot of movies. There was one that I, and, and I'll be perfectly honest, I have not seen any of them. <laughs> I watched, I watched their YouTube recap video, which went through all of his movies. And I was like, this is a person whose filmography I know nothing about. And I would love to see the, the one I was really interested in is he made a film called Sada, which is based on the Abe Sada story, which okay. is the basis of in the realm of the senses. Oh, um, and uh, you know, he he never uh, got the kind of worldwide acclaim. This was, as far as a lot of people are concerned, is his masterpiece. Um, but I was like, oh my god, this is this movie is so brilliant. Like, I I, I think it's fun to call it like a a demented B movie, but I think there's a lot under the hood here, and the filmmaking technique at display is so incredible. Like the final sequences when the house is like a uh, a liquid, um, you know, like water. It's blood. Uh, it's supposed to be blood. blood everywhere, and 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 we're realizing that that the cat is the mastermind of all of us. So it, I Blanche. didn't fully <laughs> understand Blanche. Yeah, um, Blanche is the cat. Is Gorgeous's cat? It, it is Gorgeous's cat, but there is a suggestion that Blanche uh, was in the house and came to get Gorgeous. Most of my notes <laughs> are about Blanche. Okay. Blanche opens those doors. Also, Blanche, also the cover of the the, the, the covered thing. Yeah. Uh, Blanche breaks the camera. There was a camera they were taking picture with, and Blanche yeah. says, "Fuck that." <laughs> uh, Blanche starts singing at a certain point. When is Blanche? Meow, starts- meow, meow, meow. Oh, okay. Uh, what else we got? Blanche. Blanche eats a lizard off the floor. Blanche eats a lizard off the floor. Yep, that total cat behavior. And then, and then here's then then it's just all like. Blanche's eye, whenever something supernatural happens, you Ooh. see Blanche and the eyes gleam green. They go, Wee-oo. yeah. 
And Beautiful I cat, by the way. Oh, yeah. I didn't know. Was Blanche the demon? Was the aunt the ghost? Who? Why? It doesn't matter. The movie doesn't present it in a way that matters. But I was wondering who who, and what is the thing that is picking off these girls in the house? Because I couldn't place it. It is the house. But Blanche, I believe, is the is the is the main perpetrator and i think there's a mention that that the aunt had died many years ago so the aunt is a ghost the, the her, i think what the, the way they describe it in the film is the aunt has died but her love for you know her her love had not died so her body kept uh was was kept alive by the house and anytime any young unmarried woman come to the house uh she eats them and the house feeds them to her Okay, uh, and keeps okay. her body alive. So and wait. Blanche is the is the is the main demon kind of behind all of us. So, but Blanche was with Gorgeous, and and there's a I think there's a line in here where it says that Blanche, uh, because Gorgeous found Blanche at some point. It was that's it's her, right. Her, her, okay, it's her cat, but but she was like Blanche came to get Gorgeous and bring her to the house. Okay, and Gorgeous comes to the house. When the mother arrives, when the, the the replacement mother arrives as well, which also brings yeah, the emphasis. There we go. Yeah. There we go. I, d- let me ask you this. Yeah. On your first viewing, did you catch all that? And the first viewing, I definitely was much more. Um, I'm looking forward to watching this again. Yeah. Because I it's feel a like great rewatch. Because it's like there's depth. You you go. It's demented, but there's depth to this. Yeah. You know, like there is a method to the madness to all of us, and 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 you you only have to watch the last. It's it's like ten minutes. Where the mother eventually arrives, walks past Banana Man, and and like it is this long, slow procession of the new gorgeous, who is now presumably also dead, but living within the house, who has come to take to kill this mother off. And yeah. it's like it's this that is the kind of final uh, march of this movie, and it is like long and slow, and it is about like. The idea it's that the calmest love, the movie ever is. Yeah, and 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 she says she has a monologue at the end, which is like love never dies, and it is about like this love that hasn't died, but she is there to take off, you know, to kill this woman who is going to marry her father. It, it's all there. It's all under the hood. Yeah, um, and you can tell. This is what I'll say. Yeah, I never doubted while watching this movie that it was all there. Yeah. I never thought, well, this doesn't make sense, and there's no clue anywhere. I'm like, this is going by very quickly yeah and i am just trying to keep up <laughs> yeah uh these these girls get axed real real bad in 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 bad ways that are then played up as slapstick right like yeah. prof uh, trying to solve what's going on is, is hilarious yeah um i think the the most the the most scenery chewing was the piano you could tell that that was from the mind of an 11 year old child <laughs> there's there's a scene in this movie where a piano eats a person. Yes. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, and uh, I will say, I wrote this down. I said, Melody's song was super close to the Black Parade. This feels like a movie that uh, Gerard Way would have watched. I don't know who Black Parade. Uh, so um, uh, My Chemical Romance. Okay. And I believe the lead singer, someone can email me in when yeah. I'm wrong, is Gerard Way, uh, okay. who has uh, has written and created Umbrella Academy uh, and has done a lot okay. of like, like, but like the song that they're playing on the piano is yeah. so close to, there's an album called The Black Parade. It's like, when I was a young boy, my okay. father, anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the, 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 it's this ding, 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 ding. And I was like, holy shit. 
and I, I'm just I'm gonna I didn't have time to look for it. I'm gonna look it up later and see if like he ever talks about this movie in an interview. Well, so the the musicians were Go Dai Go, mm-hmm. uh, and I believe the Watermelon Man is the leads is the uh, performer from Go Dai Go, and he's the guy who says How Sue. And this photo uh, here, does this kind of feel like My Chemical Romance? Um, <laughs> from my good, I so go weirdly the hat. Yeah, the hat. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's, again, obviously, MCR is much newer, but I think if this felt like a thing that uh, the cinematic proclivities of him would have would have glassed onto and been like, yes, I'm going to I'm I'm just by chance going to Google go to go and my chemical romance yeah, and, and see what comes. I up. don't know. Who knows? <laughs> Maybe it's just a, 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 a sonic happenstance. Yeah. But I, I was I was very taken aback by that moment when Melody starts playing. I'm like, is she going to bust into Black Parade right now? And I was like, I, I kind of lost my shit in that moment. Yeah. And then the piano eats her. Um, <laughs> yeah, there's there's a lot of. Um, there's a, so obviously this is the late 70s, y'all, yeah. and shit gets wacky. Um, there's a lot of like looking at one thing, cutting away, and then it's a different thing. <laughs> like, but But there's also little techniques everywhere. Like yeah. there's a sequence where like, I think, one of the characters, prof or melody or sweet or something like that, is looking at her friend and she's like closing one eye and clo- opening the other. And then we cut to it and we see the friend, uh, it might be sweet or something like that, uh, in both camera angles, like flipping backwards and forwards. It was like, there's a lot going on here. Yeah. And it's not just blood and gore. It's like really interesting, captivating techniques. Also, the blood and gore was neither bloody or gory. Yeah, in a way, like everything felt like a, a a proxy for the thing that was happening. Yeah. Like the blood, they weren't ever trying to make the blood look like blood. Yeah. The, and and like anytime there was a body part or something, it was just a mannequin limb. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a there's a wonderful sequence where Auntie is eating a hand. Yeah. And it's like, that kind of looks delicious. <laughs> it's it's is it cake? Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know if I've seen another, and I'll air quotes it, horror movie like that just leans so far away from the aesthetics of pseudo realism. Yeah, I mean, like Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi are sort of in that ball. The early Peter Jackson and early Sam Raimi are kind of in that ballpark. Their work is a little bit more like we'll there, talk about. This from- is extreme, but I think that there is a visual. Like in both uh, Peter Jackson and Sam Raimi, when they show you something gory, they want you to be disgusted. Yeah, they want they want you to feel the squish. Right. This movie is no squish. Yeah, it's meant to be fun. It's kind of and, and and like and in a way, I can kind of you can see that what is meant to happen here is that you see this with a big crowd who are all kind of laughing uproariously. Yeah, you know, like that's where the movie plays. It doesn't play in the sort of like. Ugh, gross kind right. of thing. Uh, even the the appearance of Max dismembered head at the bit at, at, at you know the twenty minute mark is in like and then it bites her butt. You know, like it's kind it bites of fu- whose butt? Uh, it bites sweet, uh, sweet, or one of the one of the girls, the girl who finds her. Oh, kung fu. Was it kung fu? No. Kung fu. Kung fu fights. The, no, 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 no. It's it's sweet or something like that. Sweet's the most undeveloped of or the- fantasy or one of them. I'm not sure. I, I did have a. A little bit of a hard time tracking, like sweet and fantasy, uh, melody, prof, Mac. Everyone else gorgeous. has jobs, yeah, yeah, or 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 things that they're always doing or talking about. Where sweet and fantasy's things were 
well, she's sweet and nice, and fantasy was always daydreaming, which could clock as sweet and nice. Like S- sweet is the one who d- starts cleaning the house, right? Yeah, and yeah. then the doll gets her, or yeah, the, yeah. The, the the bedding gets her, <laughs> yeah. or the there's there's lots of different elements of the house destroying these girls. And in the second you realize that the director was talking to his 11 year old daughter, like, Oh, and then what happens? Like, Oh, someone's stuck in a clock. And it's like, okay, yeah, Yeah. it's a kid thing. Oh, the, they went to go get towels and blankets, but then all the blankets smothered her. It's like, Oh, (laughs) all right. That's yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, the cat painting vomits water blood. Also, also they never kill the cat. They kill the cat painting like Kung Fu. Kung Fu. Um, I think the Kung Fu battle at the end, again, the go to guy, the go Daigo uh, music for Kung Fu is amazing, and I think it'll immediately become a ringtone for me. <laughs> um, uh, she she goes into a battle at the end uh, against the house, where she's almost strangled by the telephone cord by the phone, and then the house fights back, and she's like doing Kung Fu against the house. <laughs> if, if you ever want to see a movie where a girl who knows Kung Fu fights a house, and I mean literally fights a house, this is the movie. That, for I, that that's the entire. That should be the IMDb description. <laughs> But then she, uh, uh, a light fixture comes down and swallows her head, and, and oh like, yeah, and and like, um, uh, kind of dismembers her body. But her legs fly out and continue to fight mm-hmm. and kill the cat. Love never from, died. <laughs> just from the from the grave, and it doesn't kill the cat. It kills the picture of the cat, which is running the house now as well. Uh, <laughs> are you still here, listener? Are you still? I, I love it. Are you still around? Yeah. Are you listening to the words that are coming out of our mouths? Because <laughs> um, right now, I feel like the, the description of this movie can never switch from the vibe of just a dismembered pile of other. Yeah. That like you, that if upon viewing, you will get a sense of of wholeness. Yeah. But I feel like discussing this movie is very, very difficult. Because of just how piecemeal it, it is not not struck like again, I go back to the 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 macro or the micro of this looks crazy confusing. The macro, you're like, oh, okay, when you pull out and look at the whole thing. I my experience of the movie was inter- interesting this time around. So I had seen it many, many years ago. I I didn't remember a lot of it, and I had I a lot of it had, had fallen out of my brain. Um, but I watched it at night by myself uh, in bed because we have a projector in our room and we can, and we can throw it up on there. And um, I was, I'm recovering from a cold and I did doze off at little points um, because I, you know, I have like Sudafed in my body. Um, Right. And, and I was kind of like, there was a thing about it, which was that it became part of the fever dream Mm -hmm. where I was watching it going, did that really just happen? Right. I and could it, see Sudafed and, and sleeping being around this thing being a very dangerous combination. Yeah, and, and I would like wake up and then be like, I like what happened was the movie plays in such a sort of hallucinatory space mm-hmm. that you start you your imagination starts firing with the movie. And I was like, I, I, I woke up very suddenly because I, you know, dozed off for a minute and I was like, okay, I gotta wind back and start watching again. And what I thought had happened was completely different to what had actually happened. <laughs> yeah. Like, like I was, I remember going through the piano sequence thinking that there was this whole other storyline going on about a soldier returning from war. And there was. Just but it in was, a different spot. It, just in a different spot. And it was like the whole movie was meshing in my brain. Um, but I can't get over the technique here. And the, and, and the thing I want to talk about here, really just from a visual effects point of view or stylistic point of view, is... Me personally, and it might this might this is biased because I think Star Wars has occupied such a huge cultural space, and the language of Star Wars 
occupies everything that we do now from you know today you know like every visual effect references star wars in some way and star wars is the progenitor progenitor for all of this um i am so much more excited by what this movie is doing from a visual effects point of view like i was stunned by it particularly uh even the little details like the eye thing uh, where where you know we're we're switching cameras really quickly uh-huh. to show, show perspective, but also when they're describing what happened to Auntie in the house, and it is this old film stock, and the film stock like pulls back, and we see the edges of the frame, and then it burns out at some point, and then as they're describing it, what's really interesting from a storytelling point of view is all the characters are talking over it as though they're characters. There's not like just one character yeah. telling us what's happening. They're like you know like. Uh, Sweet will chime in going, oh, he's so handsome. Or, you know, like they were so in love. You know, like there's there's this like all the characters are speaking at once. And it's like this amazing display of unleashing chaos. You know, like that that's very hard to do. Like I can't do that. Like as a filmmaker, I'm always like, how do I control the scene so that the information is most accurately depicted? But this is like it's chaotic and wonderful, and that's what makes it amazing. I think that what's cool about it is, and it sets you up for that. Like, mm-hmm. I'm always big into, I've said this a million times, but like a movie following its own rules. Yeah. Like, it sets its rules and whatever they are, as long as it sticks to those rules, it's great. This movie, even though it seems like there are no rules, yeah. they're definitely a rules. Mm. And, and they set you up to expect it with how the film is structured and how the visual effects are prepared and presented to you and like all this. And you're like, oh, <laughs> cool. And then it's that. Yeah. Um, and you see different and interesting things, but it's all within that wheelhouse. I think the the Star Wars comparison is interesting because Star Wars was impressive because it let us see fantastical things that looked as close to real as yeah. we'd ever seen them. This is the direct antithesis of that. This is not trying to trick your brain into thinking the piano is actually eating yeah. melody. We are seeing a visual representation with an artist's brush as opposed to a like uh, trying to chase reality yeah. of what a piano eating a girl would look like. Right. <laughs> this is an impressionist painting. This is not like a photorealistic yeah. style thing. So it's interesting to see. Obviously, it, it makes sense that something like Star Wars would be the progenitor of like, oh, well, we want things to look real. We want to dazzle people with how real this can look. Yeah. Where this is, we want it's less of a dazzle and more of a like, like uh, imagine this uh, it, it, uh, hypnotize. Yeah. It's a it's a it's it's drawing you in as opposed to stopping you from bouncing off. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a really it, it's we forget that visual effects and uh, and special effects can do that because we are always, it feels like nine times out of 10 chasing realism. Yeah. Um, But it's got this, this has got that sort of childlike wonder to it. Yeah. Where there's like a million ideas flying at you from every direction. The script feels like it's funny on the surface feels like it was written in crayon. It obviously wasn't. And there is thought. And that's the reason why this works. Yeah. But it is presented in a way where you're like, yeah, an 11 year old wrote this. (laughs) Like, It's, would, yeah. would you show this to like if friends came over for a Halloween movie or something like this, would this be on the rotation for you? Yeah, I think it would. I mean, because. OK, so another film I just watched recently, mm-hmm. nothing like this movie, but it was Halloween. So fuck it. Yeah. The Nun. Yep. OK. Recent film. Yeah, sure I was. Seen it, sure was a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like and that's not to take anything away from the visual effects of it or like the jump scares or, you know, whatever. But like. It felt like a B movie with a budget. 
and I watched it. I couldn't tell you much about it now mm. other than there is a nun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and like the problem with something that I have with sort of recent ghosty horror movies mm-hmm. is they very rarely follow their own rules or even their own like style and pacing. Like something will always break. A character will just do something because it's convenient for the plot as opposed to like a feeling of what the character would do or the movie where this movie, I feel like everything is in line with what it's setting up to do. Yeah. Even though that is chaos, it's not that level of chaos of like, anything could happen no what's going to happen is chaos in the specific like childlike wonder paint by numbers kind of thing and we're going to stick to that i never for as fucking batshit as this movie is i never didn't believe a character was going to do what they did even down to watermelon man or mr togo or like Mm -hmm. any because it sets it up and it keeps you in that lane yeah whereas something that i've noticed especially with like the various hauntings and the nun and the Annabelle and like all that, like any, any Mm. ghost horror lately, I have, I have bounced off hard because whenever something gets a little too complex in the plot, I always feel like they just kind of hand wave it and, or ignore it. And I'm like, motherfucker, like Mm. stick with your world. This movie house sticks with its world. And so I think to answer your question in a very long winded way, I would be happy to show this to people because I think it offers something that we don't get in modern horror. And that is, and beyond just um, the slapstickness of horror that we brought up before, but also just a, a, a tonal consistency and a trust in the audience that we are doing this thing and you can come along with us and we will not let your trust uh, be unwarranted. I think the other thing is it's also, um, you know, the movies that you describe, like the nuns, the hauntings, all that sort of stuff. Um, there's a lot of risk mitigation going on oh, in, terms, in terms of how those movies are marketed, sold, and like they, they need to make a profitable return. You know, there are a few exceptions like paranormal behavior or um uh the Blair Witch Project. But even those tr- tr- franchised out, like they, they eventually franchised that because they made so much money. Um, this really feels like a playground movie, you know, like it was made by people having fun making it. Um, And it brings, you know, like there's a lot of, it feels very carefree in terms of um, uh, just the volume. Like, again, there's a scene where Togo, where one of the, um, um, one of the characters is really upset and hoping Togo is going to turn up soon. And in order to transition between uh, that and seeing where Togo is at that point, um, I, out of the left of the screen, a character suddenly pops up eating noodles, a male character who we've never seen before while Sweet is in, or whoever the girl is, is in frame. And then it cuts to that character. It's a lot of like, and you're like, you're completely, you know, jarred by this cut and like, what what just happened? Um, and the movie's kind of filled with moments like that, like the the sky background in the in the beginning, which is this beautiful sunset, is like, what is this? You know, and then, uh, Mr. Togo, he was walking down the stairs and Blanche walks past and then he falls and then falls into a bucket and kind of like scuttles down the street in like a stop motion way. And it's like, there's no reason to do that. Well, I think it's, it's the, wonderful. I, I think it's to teach us that Blanche that, has got magic. Blanche, Blanche is magic and Blanche doesn't want Togo to come because mm. this is a place to punish young women. Yeah. Like yeah, in yeah. a weird way. Like this yeah. is a like. And so he Blanche is the reason that. 
Mr. Togo can't go with them because yeah. he I forget why the bucket turns into the, the the thing. He has to get his car fixed or something. I don't remember. Well, he couldn't he couldn't get <laughs> so he couldn't get the uh, he, he gets stuck in the bucket and then that causes him. So he has to catch a train, but there's no train going. So then he has to get the bucket removed. Or something like that. Yeah. Because then he eventually drives way, the car anyway. It's Blanche's fault. Blanche <laughs> the cat is the mastermind of this movie. Very uh, adorable cat. The, well, until the poster. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway. I love it. Fun I, movie. I loved it. I, I was giddy watching this. I think it's so fun. Exciting to watch. Um, kind of just, yeah, like you say, breaks the breaks the mold a little bit. And then just, I was kind of like watching going, I now, I, I want to see more of his films because as I understand it, um you know, there were some successes along the way, but it wasn't like he became Sam Raimi or Peter, no. Peter Jackson or anything. This was the movie. Um, but yeah, what a movie to celebrate. I'm I'm really glad that you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was uh, very fun. Uh, I, <laughs> the double feature between this and Gian Dalman, I cannot imagine the whiplash that is going to happen. Maybe you watch half of the first one, then you pop into this and then you go back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe, that's, maybe that's the way to do it. That's canonically the Topam way, I think. Yeah, yeah. Anyway... This has been the only podcast about the film Hausu. Uh, Shahir, when you are not having your skull transformed into a melon and being left into a frosty well, where can folks find you? You can find me chilled out at my website, www.shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-A-R-D-A-U-D. Matt, when you are kung fu fighting a telephone, where can people find you? You can find my legs still kicking at that painting of a cat over at my website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W-K-R-O-L.com. My life and works. Also, Skeletor, the number four, P-R-E-Z on Instagram or P-S-N. And of course, Emperor M-S-K on uh, Twitter, even though I'm not checking it as much. Uh, Matthew Kroll on Blue Sky. Anyway, next week. I, I got to say, I did uh, go along and see Anatomy of a Fall. Uh -huh. It's one of the best movies of the year. Wow. Without a doubt. Like, uh, I saw it on a Sunday night in a movie theater by myself. Like, I was the only person in the theater. Oh, no. And it was extraordinary. Uh, I don't know if it's still playing, so it might be hard for you to get to that one right. at this point. But Anatomy of a Fool is incredible. Um, if you like Asghar Fahadi movies, for example, it is well in line. It's an incredible courtroom drama. Uh, well worth an effort uh, if you can go along to see that. Um, Perhaps. But, I don't know what else is. I know in two weeks, uh, in two weeks, I would like to do the Marvels, but I think it might be one of the last Marvel movies that I want to do. Okay. And I, it's almost I want to treat that episode as a reflection of of how far we've come. Not when we started this podcast. It was what, 2015, 2000, Whatever, yeah. yeah, but no, because Iron Man was 2011, 2008, 2008, Iron Man. Oh, was. Avengers was 2011. Yeah, yeah, sure. So I was in my full my full fanboy uh, mm. shill phase. Yeah. And I have fallen, I think, <laughs> since then. And, and uh, to be honest, you know, the the, the actual the, the reasoning behind that or not the reasoning, the, the proof is I've stopped buying the Blu-rays. I used to buy them out of almost uh, obligation. OK. And I think starting with Multiverse of Madness, I was like, no, <laughs> I don't need this in my life. Uh, but I feel like the Marvel's is taking three characters that I like a lot from mm -hmm. different properties. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's going to be 
good. And I think it's going to turn. I think it's going to be a visual turning point for what the fuck they're trying to do. And I kind of want to treat it as an experiment to see, like, is there saving this or can they let it go or are they too addicted? So there's an article, I think, in Variety this week about uh, the it's it's funny because every commentator has gone the MCU's in shambles this week because of this one article. Uh, And there's also a book, uh, Joanne Robinson, and uh, I can't remember the other author had written about the MCU Marvel machine and and where it is today. Um, and look, I I, I think uh, I, I have no shade towards Marvel. And, and I've always said the business model that Kevin Feige has implemented is one of the most successful in the history of filmmaking. Thousand percent. That, that uh, you know, David Oselznik himself would be excited and will be remembered in, in eons to come. My issue has always been is will I remember the movies? And, and, and for me, that's always, you know, the, the, the question mark has always been like, no, um, you know, with, with certain exceptions, I yeah. think certain things, there was a, there was a point, there was an interesting thing that happened this week on Twitter, uh, no, on TikTok. Okay. Uh, um, slightly better, <laughs> uh, which was that, uh, Martin Scorsese has joined Letterbox and TikTok. His daughter, Francesca Scorsese, mm-hmm. uh, posts on his behalf and they made a funny TikTok where, uh, uh, Martin Scorsese was talking to his dog who happens to be named Oscar. Um, and, <laughs> and, uh, he was trying to direct his dog in a scene or something like that. It was, it was for, for, for the deep cinephiles who are just learning. It's a really good example of the Kuleshov effect. Um, but, uh, then Joe Russo, the director of, uh, Avengers, uh, and Captain America and a bunch of Marvel movies, um, did a response video to that. Where he said, "Oh, look, he's got a schnauzer named Oscar. That's cute." He goes, and then he grabs his dog and his dog, and he goes, "Sit down, box office," as a sort of uh, a dig back at Martin Scorsese. And 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 look, I'm no shade to Joe Russo. I think it was actually a, a perfectly funny joke, and I think it was meant to be lighthearted. And it is lighthearted and fun, and and probably I can t- guarantee you now, Martin Scorsese and Joe Russo don't give a flying fuck about each other's jokes at each other, digs at each other. No, but the internet. <laughs> let me tell you, the internet had a field day with this. Uh, and, and like really went, ran wild with, uh, with, uh, Joe Russo at this point. Um, I think my, we we can save this for that episode too. I'm I'm fascinated by the fact that the Marvel seems to have so little fanfare for this movie. There is so little fanfare. There's an article. There's also the actor strike still going on. Actor strike still going on. Vanity Fair ran an article about Nia DaCosta's directing of the film, where she explicitly states in there, again, read it how you will. Uh, She says, this is a Kevin Feige production. And you should know going in that it is a Kevin Feige. There was something along the lines of like, she went to go work on another film a month after. Which I think is a common common occurrence, but there... There's, people are trying to read into things. Yeah, people are trying to read into things, but there's also not that sort of level of this is the movie I've been kind of working towards kind of thing and, right. and, and building up. It, it really feels like, and, and, I, and I've kind of felt that the, it's, it's a machine. It is a machine and young filmmakers can get swallowed up into that machine. The, and I think, and again, the thing I'm interested in exploring is even though you didn't, you weren't as involved or as enamored <laughs> as I was. Yeah. Like where, where we thought, where, where we thought it was going, where it's gotten to what the current fall off points were like, I don't know. I find the whole thing fascinating because you're right. It is a machine. Yeah. 
And but the machine, in my opinion, somehow was churning out emotionally resonant content for a longer time than the machine should have been, at least for me. Mm -hmm. And and then it even when it positioned after Endgame going into the the sort of phase four beginnings, I saw hints of, oh, they could do this again if they just do this thing. And then they just fucking veered mm. and i don't know i don't know it's weird anyway i'm yeah. curious about having that as a longer discussion when we when we eventually talk about the marvels either way you should go see anatomy of a fall <laughs> anatomy of a fall in theaters not now maybe maybe if you, if you can get to anatomy of a fall i would say it's one it of has most. to be jumping to streaming at some point soon I it imagine. will jump into streaming soon um there's also the royal hotel um which i've uh, kitty green's film uh is getting great reviews and is available on vod right now and i'm being very excited to see that um yeah so there's there's a lot of stuff there's out there stuff yeah there's a lot of stuff out there and uh we will talk at you we're gonna talk at you about one of those stuffs <laughs> next week uh but for this week go watch house go watch house go watch house just don't do <laughs> it if you have a piano or a clock or bedding or a cat or a watermelon or a well <laughs> or a dead aunt don't do it. Don't watch it in, in, in close proximity to any of those things. Here's my pitch. Watch House in your house dressed as House from the TV show. Listening to House music. <laughs> Listening to House music. Uh, <laughs> is that all the houses we got? And then and then followed up with uh, Laz Von Trier's film, The House That Jack Built. Yeah. yeah. Do it in that order. Do it in that order. Okay. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>